0: Oh, hello.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Chorus vs.
0: Chorus. I'm one of your hosts, Dane, and I like music. And I'm your other host, Ethan, and I actually don't particularly like music. I just like hearing myself talk.
1: Yeah. And you just like making music. <laughs> but not listening. Not consuming
0: then, it, no. Not letting no, no,
1: no. other people's ideas spoil your virgin mind.
0: No, definitely not. I want people to hear me, but I don't want to hear people.
1: So Ethan, what is our
0: uh, theme for today? Ooh, it's a good one. We are talking about session musicians. So mm. our theme today is session. Ethan,
1: can you give us a little explanation of what a
0: session musician is and does mm. and be <laughs> is rbm uh, so is session R. musicians are i would say more or less kind of a dying art uh, mm-hmm. but uh, essentially yeah, session musicians up. are folks who if you are recording a song and you yourself as the recording artist or the band don't know how to play bass or are not particularly good at it or want somebody who may be a little bit better than you to play bass or keys or whatever instrument, mm-hmm. uh, you can hire session musicians. And these are folks who are really highly qualified, very well-trained musicians who can basically fill in parts on a recording. And this was something that was really, really, really common for most of recorded music history. Yeah, and especially like the 50s and
1: 60s and 70s with the supremacy of these labels in house producers. And yeah, you bring in these stars, if you just want like a group of people to perfectly play something and not mess up and just slot in the the
0: talent in front of it, you have the session bands there for that. Right. And the, the other interesting thing about session musicians is, as Dane said, if you want somebody to just play the music that's on the sheet of paper, that's one thing. But A lot of session musicians and a lot of the people that we're going to talk about in this uh, episode were actually creatives. They were part of the songwriting team, but never really officially credited. Um, You know, they were people who uh, these artists leaned on and said, hey, can you can you make something that's, you know, sounds like this, that kind of sounds funky? Can you make something that kind of has that Nashville sound? Uh, and again, we'll talk about all these kinds of specific uh, labels and session musician teams that did this, but they were really generative in creating the the sound and the flavor and the licks that you know that go into your headphones that, you know, they weren't written down on a sheet of paper. These people created them independently.
1: And especially with the Motown example, the Funk Brothers that we're going to get into, largely anonymous and uncredited for decades. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'll explain who wrote your favorite little doom, 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 doom. <laughs> uh, my girl like that that was a person and he yeah. played it and it was you know anonymous for many years but all of these classic almost mythological elements of these songs that feel like they're just like set into the firmament of the musical landscape were played by these session musicians yeah like you were saying like these session musicians had personalities and they had flair and they had Styles that became famous in the genre uh, that influenced many other musicians, and some of them went off to become famous singer-songwriters in their own right, which we'll which we'll talk about as well. Yeah, and yeah, it, it is a dying art, right? Like, uh, yeah,
0: I, I think it's it's a combination of factors. One is studios aren't a thing anymore, right? right. No, musicians don't go into a studio unless you are really. You know, an established musician and you have backing of a label to go into a studio, but, you know, you can record really high quality professional music in your bedroom with a microphone and a MIDI keyboard and, you know, a MacBook Pro, you don't need to go into a studio and furthermore a lot of the sounds Uh, that people are using are synthesized sounds. So there's no point in hot, you know, if I don't play guitar, well, that's fine. I can just get a guitar sample from the internet, or I can do it on a keyboard or type it into my computer somehow. Yeah, Um, I can can craft Old Town Road out of a Nine Inch Nails sample. Is that really how we did it?
1: You didn't know that? Yeah. I didn't know that. That little guitar thing is Nine Inch Nails. Wow. (laughs) Isn't that
0: incredible? Little little, uh, Nine Inch Nails X. That's amazing. (laughs) Oh, I would absolutely listen to that man <laughs> and that and it's interesting because well so getting back to what I was saying before is that you know a lot of session musicians existed because artists maybe weren't pro- proficient enough at their own instrument to play a certain line so for mm-hmm. example there's a kind of famous example of the monkeys yeah. who were certainly not particularly good at their instruments they had um, to learn they did have to learn, learn. and yeah. they had to have session musicians play their stuff mm-hmm. again now we're in a at a point where people can do this independently, but we're going to talk about examples where you had musicians who were very proficient at their instruments, still entrusting the recording of their music to session musicians. Yeah. Like the birds
1: who are all incredibly good musicians, of course, you know, Roger McGuinn would play on the tracks, but they would just be like, bring in the wrecking crew, you know, Mm -hmm. have them play. Also, I think I, I, I want to state at the top here, because I think it'll come up a bunch. These session musicians cannot be overstated, played on an incomprehensibly large number of recordings. <laughs> yeah. We'll, of course, we'll talk about Hal Blaine with The Wrecking Crew. He played on 35,000 recordings, which means, Nora and I calculated this, if that's just one recording a day, that's 85 years. Right. Uh, So of course, this means that these session musicians have days where they're just recording multiple sessions, a whole
0: albums worth of songs. Yeah,
1: and just really pounding it out. So these people are like, you know, you think about the creative arts, and you have these rare stars who become rich and famous. But within that ecosystem of creativity, you have people like this who knock out probably I'd probably guess like a middle-class living just showing up to work and mm-hmm. playing for 10 hours the
0: clavinet or something <laughs> I, I would liken it to a lot of people love to watch these videos of people doing physical tasks really efficiently and yeah. quickly so somebody like slicing a watermelon really yeah. fast or like or like hitting, hitting something bricks on the really quickly yeah. like this is the musical equivalent of that yeah. like these people were just so good could do it in one take and some musician would come in and say hey can you make it kind of sound like this and they go yeah. sure here's a here's the thing i just pooped out this baseline yeah. that's now going to be you know Famous living forever labor. on vinyl and uh, it's skilled labor right i think it's
1: so interesting to think about creativity in that way but you have mm-hmm. so many people like this who are
0: craftsmen craftsmen yep. men and women yeah, um, absolutely. Well, let's get into it. Let's yeah. talk about our our different session musicians and the way that we've broken this down is actually not by individual musicians, but by groups of session musicians. Yes. Because as Dane was saying earlier, a lot of these session musicians were housed in a particular music studio. They were local to a particular place. And so, you know, all of these musicians working in this particular studio or this particular town became known as this crew. And so the the four session musician groups that we're going to talk about are the Wrecking Crew, the Nashville A-Team, the Funk Brothers and the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section, which uh, I love this other name that they go by, the Swampers. Yeah, that's appropriate too. (laughs) Uh, The Swamp Ass Instrumentalists. Yeah, and Um, boy howdy were they, because uh, it was hot where they were in Muscle Shoals, Alabama.
1: I think only really recently in the past like 15 years have people... Become actively interested in knowing who these groups are. Again, largely anonymous for a long time, but there's now in Nashville Musicians Hall of Fame. And all four of these groups that we're going to talk about have been, were the first generation to be awarded for this. So I think there's a continuing interest in, you know, peeling past the, you know, the personalities of the stars and like finding out who are these, yeah, these skilled laborers who make these songs that we love so much. Yeah. So uh, let's start with the Wrecking Crew. Ethan, tell us mm. who the Wrecking Crew
0: are. If you came into this episode knowing what a Session musician was, you probably knew because you've heard of the Wrecking Crew. Yeah. This is easily the most recognizable Session musician group out there, and for good reason, because they recorded literally thousands of songs. Dane said that one of their members, you know, 35,000 recordings, somebody I'll talk about who was in this crew, Carol Kay, Mm. uh, over 10,000 songs in her 50 year career. But essentially they were a group of uh, musicians that were based on Los Angeles in the 1960s and 70s, literally hundreds of top 40 hits were a result of this wrecking crew. And what's really interesting is, you know, as we were talking about earlier, these are like craftspeople. They were all folks who had jazz or classical backgrounds, formal backgrounds in music, would come together and were the gold standard for session musicians. And if you were going to go into the studio in Los Angeles, you would want the Wrecking Crew on your songs. And just a very short set of songs. If you have listened to a song that came out in the 1960s, you have heard The Wrecking Crew. yeah. So very small sample here. Good Vibrations by The Beach Boys. I Got You, Babe by Sonny and Cher. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Robinson, Bridge Over Troubled Waters by Simon and Garfunkel. Aquarius by The Fifth Dimension. Mm-hmm. Anytime you've ever seen a movie and they use a song from the 60s, you are listening to The Wrecking Crew. you listening to Carol Kay and Outland. Yeah, not, a, not bad. I, I could probably do better, make a better roster of songs, but... I mean, it's literally all songs. Yeah, like any song from that era that is still played on classic rock radio is like probably the Wrecking Crew is on fifty percent of them. Yeah, they actually coalesced initially as the de facto house band for Phil Spector. Yeah, we've we've talked about it on this on the show before, but this wall of sound is in large part due to the Wrecking Crew and this enormous set of musicians that came in and were able to lay down these really thick, really richly textured tracks. So there's way too many musicians to list, but one that I really wanted to highlight for a number of reasons is Carol Kay. And so the song that I chose to highlight Carol Kay is uh, the song Sloop John B by the Beach Boys, which is off of Pet Sounds. This song I don't think is like anybody's favorite Beach Boys song I really like the song but I don't think it like especially on this album comes to like the top of people's list I think it's like, one of their classics that's what I, I think, think it's a, yeah. yeah yeah that's true I guess like I'm thinking like Good Vibrations or God Only Knows God Only Knows like those are kind of like the you know oh Brian Wilson at his peak mm-hmm. kind of peak of powers but this song is really interesting because this is another example of these really, really talented musicians coming in to a studio and saying, hey, you know, session musicians, take it away. What do you got for us? Yeah. And Carol Kay was one of those musicians. So Carol Kay uh, was the bass player for the Wrecking Crew. Uh, as I said before, she played over 10,000 recordings over her 50 year career and notable in that she was one of very few women in this industry working as a session musician, and especially on her particular instrument, which which, which was electric bass. And she was always entrusted by these musicians who would come in to do her thing. And this track is an example of that. And she was quoted in an interview as saying, Brian Wilson encouraged me to move around with my parts. He liked the bass to be non-static and energetic. What's funny is, I never knew he was a bassist. I always thought of him as a piano player who knew how to write for other instruments. So again, Brian Wilson, accomplished bassist. The guy, you know, obviously is a great songwriter and he says, no, you know what, Carol? I I want you to handle this. Just make it move around, make it do its own thing and we'll see how it sounds. If you listen to this song, you'll hear this bass part really moving around and doing a lot of interesting stuff. I also think it was very appropriate for this song in particular because I didn't know this, but. Uh, the song Sloop John B was originally a Bahamian folk song.
1: Mm.
0: It was basically like sailors in the island of Nassau came up with this you know, song that you would sing while you're rigging up a ship. And the original folk song, you can find recordings on, on Wikipedia or on the internet. It's very, very simple. And this song is anything but simple. You have yeah. tons of crazy instruments moving around. You have this acapella break, which is really gorgeous. I think that Brian Wilson understood, you know, we're just trying to make something interesting here. I don't have a vision in my head because the song could be anything, right? Because it's such a simple song, we're interpolating into this new thing. Like, Hey Carol, try it out. Do your thing. Walk around.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, So I just love this song. I I think it's like, again, that acapella break is, is really gets me, but I think more than anything, it's just such a perfect example of what session musicians and especially karaoke of the Wrecking Crew could bring to a song and really help completely change the nature of that song and contribute beyond just hear some sheet music, play the music.
1: My choice is Never My Love by The Association. This song, Never My Love, is um, so gorgeous. I feel like it kind of predicted, influenced McCartney's here, there, and everywhere, those kinds of Hmm. really groundbreaking Beatles, multi-track ballads. The Association were an LA-based group from the early 60s. They began as a 13-member band called The Men. And all- The men. The men. (laughs) I mean, what else do you need? You need to, you know, come off as masculine, even though you're doing these wafer thin, you know, angelic <laughs> harmonies. All thirteen of them sang and played instruments. Wow. Um, and then seven of them left. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine seven of them like left the room, all moving their arms and legs like in unison, and saying, <laughs> "We're out of here!" in like seven part harmony. And then the six remaining members, they all played their instruments and sang. But of course, at this time, they needed to focus on the singing, I guess, and bring in the world-class wrecking crew. Never love. What makes you
0: think love will end When you know that my home
1: Their producer on this song, Kurt betcher was this pioneer in studio recording. This was in 1965, so around the time Beatlemania and the British invasion was like 64, but everyone was still recording in mono. And this song mm. is like a really early painting in
0: stereo. How mm. can you think love will end when I've asked you to spend your whole
1: And there's this quote from All Music that talks about this particular group. If the association were able to play, like, why did they get the session musician to play instead? It says, uh, the fact that most of the members didn't play on their records was not advertised, but it was a common decision in recording in those days. Los Angeles, in particular, was home to some of the best musicians in the country they worked affordably and there was no reason to make less than perfect records. There again, is that Mm. thing where it's like, do we really want to mess this up when time is money? And so, as I mentioned, like even the birds stood on the sidelines when it was time to do the instrumental tracks on their earliest records. Although this sense that the association's music was a quote production rather than the work of an actual band probably helped contribute to their anonymity as a group kind of sums up pretty well, like, what was going on in 1965, not a tourist production model. I mean, it was still this era in the 64, 65, like even the Beatles, half of the songs were covers, right? It just still wasn't common for any group to write a full album Mm -hmm. as a statement. Mm -hmm. It it was a package that the studios put together. And so it would be incredibly rare for a group at this point to play all their own stuff on the uh, recording. But anyway, who is on this track? We have Al Casey and Mike D.C. Larry Neckdell on keyboards. We have Joe Osborne on bass, who is also with the Nashville A-Team. So we have some Nashville A-Team crossover. And it's interesting. We're going to see a lot of cross currents here because actually the Wrecking Crew played on a lot of Motown stuff because Motown had an LA satellite. Not only all these LA classics, but a lot of Motown stuff had the Wrecking Crew. And then of course on drums, The song is Hal Blaine. I think the best image to hold in your mind is, you know, who's the guy who on Be My Baby played and then just launched like a thousand songs that take that drum beat. (laughs) So that's that guy on this.
0: Yeah, it's a great one. It's uh, hard to argue against the Beach Boys. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you.
1: I brought a knife to a Beach Boys fight, but you like the song?
0: Oh, yeah. It's great. I think you're totally right. The like sort of delicate nature of it, which for a group that used to be called The Men, the is, a, is a little surprising. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, all right. Sure. Whatever. Beach Boys can have it. Nailed it. Uh, we should mention people who were part of the Wrecking Crew went on to have incredibly successful careers themselves as artists. Uh, Leon Russell, uh, you know, who went on to establish music scene out of Tulsa called the Tulsa Sound with like J.J. Kale. And then Glenn Campbell was also part of the Wrecking Crew and then went on yeah. to have his ginormous Glenn Campbell career. So that's the Wrecking Crew. Pretty incredible. We didn't do any Phil Spector, but I think we wanted to to go a little, a little afield. Yeah, a little Um, deeper. Yeah. So the next category is the Nashville A-Team. Ethan and I are
0: both huge fans of the city of Nashville. What a cool place. Yeah. I love it. Just every single place you go to listen to music, you can go to a random bar on a Wednesday night and hear some of the best music you'll ever ever hear hear in your life. And it will be just... I actually... Served you drinks earlier. Now I'm up here. Just casually played
1: too. Yeah. Quite refreshing to have a town in America that isn't LA or New York. That is the center of an international business. Um, Although, you know, Matt Silcock, who was on our labels episode, has a really interesting pet theory where he says, like, if you look at the two cities in Tennessee, Memphis and Nashville, that Memphis is this... Black city that is like so central to music history that got left behind, kind of rust belted. And Nashville is basically this satellite city of New York where all Mm. the New York business interests come in and they built a corporate ecosystem around country music. Super interesting theory. Maybe we'll have them on someday to uh, again to yak about that. But what is, you know, why is Nashville important? Well, we have the Nashville sound. You can read any number of books about this sort of history of roots music and country music and blues in the south and by the 50s the established genre of country music was honky tonk and actually like uh, it's interesting i was just listening to a podcast about the cancellation of the dixie chicks but it wasn't actually until i think the 70s that it began to be called country music or maybe the late 60s because of there's this split with reactionary, like kind of right-wing country music and then, you know, country music that was made by leftists who were, you know, opposed to the Vietnam War and
0: American mm, empire, and stuff
1: like that. You know, the rebel folk music, mm-hmm. of Woody Guthrie, it began to be called country. This is patriotic music, right? That was- Ah,
0: that. interesting.
1: But in the early 50s, the, the reigning genre was honky tonk, which was rootsier, you know, rougher- And a lot of these Nashville musicians began on the strip in Nashville or in the South and Southwest playing honky tonk bars. But then, you know, who comes along and destroys the business paradigm of every single music label is, of course, the Beatles in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And honky tonk music starts to really dip, lose record sales and stuff like that. So this genre arises, these three architects of this new genre, the Nashville sound, Owen Bradley, Bob Ferguson, and Chet Atkins, who created this new style called the Nashville sound, and was also a member of these session musicians, who was a virtuosic, legendary guitar player, who would go on to actually directly influence George Harrison as well. Mm-hmm. The three of these guys created out of desperate survival the Nashville sound. It adds, you know, smoother background singing, these glitzy strings.
0: It makes it a little more urbane, a little more cityish. Mm-hmm. If you can picture the difference between like Dolly Parton, yeah, and you know country music that maybe came before that, like it's the it's the veneer, the kind of sheen, the class, you know, it's just more Hollywood.
1: Yeah, it is more Hollywood. It's more pop, glamorous. Uh, out of this new genre that then created Nashville, right, which is now still this thriving city that has turned out for decades, you know, every mega star of country out of that genre come the Nashville A team, which were a group of dozens, just like the wrecking crew, Nashville session musicians, and they played with everybody, Elvis Patsy Cline, Bob Dylan came and played with them for Nashville Skyline. Jerry Lee Lewis, Brenda Lee, Roy Orbison, who we'll talk about in a bit. And so here are some notable musicians that I think are interesting to hear about. So Chet Atkins, the giant of the Nashville A-team and the Nashville Sound. Bob Moore was a bassist. He played on 17,000 Nashville recordings.
0: Just so ridiculous. Like these
1: numbers we're throwing out are just insane. I didn't think it was physically possible before I saw these numbers. Like, right. it's just like I've never done 17,000 of any, anything uh, <laughs> I've life. slept. Yeah. Uh, but Bob Moore, I mentioned him in an earlier episode. He is the father of bedroom pop, DIY rock pioneer, R Stevie Moore. There you go. Yeah. Other notable Nashville A-teamers, Earl Scruggs, who is a banjo player. He played uh, on Foggy Mountain Breakdown, a pretty famous song. He played the Beverly Hillbillies theme. But he pioneered what is called the Scruggs style, which is still the most popular finger-picking style in bluegrass. Charlie McCoy was a famous session harmonica player, played with Loretta Lynn, Johnny Cash, Elvis. Jimmy Riddle was also a harmonica session musician, and he was the resident harmonica guy on the show Hee Haw. Ah, uh, yes. Floyd Lightnin' Chance was a stand-up bassist. You might know him for his bass line on Your Cheatin' Heart by Hank Williams. Hargis Pig Robbins was a keyboardist played with Dolly Parton. Are these real names, or are you just literally making them up as you go? I mean, I don't think I could have the imagination for the kind of, uh, I mean, just, a you can imagine Pig Heart, right? Like you can just- Hey, ma- Pig,
0: lay down that bass, boy.
1: Yeah, Pig Robbins just like showing up with sunglasses on at a Roy Orbison <laughs> session and just like knocking out a, a nasty riff. And then doing um, 15 more that day. Yeah. Uh, This is a funny bit of trivia. Boots Randolph was the session saxophonist, and he's the guy who played uh, Yakety Sax, which I think is really funny. And then I would be remiss if I didn't mention Ween. Do you know about this?
0: Not even a little bit.
1: (laughs) So Ween get this major label contract, and they have a couple of left field post-Nirvana novelty hits on MTV. They break even or even make some money. And so for their next album... The label's like what do you want to do and they're like we want to go to nashville and get a bunch of a team musicians and like make a country album
0: ah uh, yes it's called like 10 countries uh, 12,
1: 12 golden country greats which is seen as a joke because it's 10 songs but it's referring to the 12 A team musicians mm. golden country greats but pig robbins is on it charlie mccoy and the jordan who are like a gospel backing group who uh, are on this Patsy Cline song I chose. But I think it's part of the ever confounding depths of Ween's weirdness that they got these like legendary musicians to of play course. on an album with them. And also they toured with them. Their band name, their touring band name was the Shit Creek Boys. So very big appropriate. You, big ups to you. But anyway, so as I was trying to think of songs for this, I was like, I want to, I want to do a deep cut. No. And then I was just like, I gotta do Patsy <laughs> Klein. Yeah. He's just one of my favorites. Uh, on this track uh, is the Jordanaires singing back up. This track is I Fall to Pieces. To me, my favorite Patsy Klein song is I Fall to Pieces. And I think it is uh, the signature Nashville sound song. You know, if someone were to ask me, like, what what does the Nashville sound mean? I would just play the first 30 seconds of the yeah. song. have this deep rich croon from patsy klein that clean guitar sound like what effect is on
0: that it's a pedal steel actually Yeah. yeah so it's it's this sort of like stereo delay effect on there but yeah i mean the pedal steel like that clean it's so clean yeah just beautiful like angelic tone on it and it's just debonair. The
1: song just gallops in with this erudite debonair and also emotional and piteous sound.
0: How can I be just your friend? You want me to act like Patsy
1: Klein was just this giant of country music. It's interesting because she's such a sad sack in all her songs, mm-hmm. but... If you watch Coal Miner's Daughter, which is the movie about Loretta Lynn, Loretta Lynn, you know, by so many different like types of chants, gets onto the Grand old Opry in Nashville and Patsy Cline kind of takes her under her wing. She's this charismatic queen, this like woman about town in Nashville. I got to go with the best, you know, I got to go with right. the, bring in the A team, you know.
0: Well, in that spirit, I went for the best. Um, Mm, we'll see about that (laughs) the song i chose is only the lonely by roy orbison i don't know of a musician that i am like more in awe of roy orbison to me is just this god of music beyond a human person just everything about him is so crazy it's very mythological so roy orbison you must know a roy orbison song because you've heard the song pretty woman well he's a um, he's a two-timer on CVC. Yes, this is true. We've yeah. talked about him before, but really interesting story, but his musical persona was he was the man in black, or all black suit, wore sunglasses and had this otherworldly voice. This song is like not only the perfect example of what the Nashville sound was, but is the perfect example of Roy Orbison going to outer space with his voice. A little bit more about Roy. So he was originally from Vernon, Texas. started playing guitar when he was very young, when he was six years old. His his dad bought him a guitar for his birthday and he started playing and he really wanted to become a musician, but didn't really have a lot of faith that he would be able to make that work. So he actually went to college at North Texas State for geology so he could work in the oil fields if uh, music didn't work out. Oh, wow. And um, but instead eventually... he struck black gold with his music. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. Um Jeez. So he, you know, he was basically trying to make it as a songwriter. He didn't really think of himself as having a particularly notable musical ability or, you know, singing voice, which I think, you know, listening to the song you would you would say is a little bit humble. Um, but he started as a songwriter and he eventually began working with the Nashville A-Team um, in his kind of songwriting career. This song, Only the Lonely, was actually shopped out to other people. He had written the song. He thought, it's a great song. I'll try and get it sold. He tried to sell it to Elvis Presley. His label didn't want it. He tried to sell it to the Everly Brothers. They didn't want it. So he said, wow. all right, screw it. I'm just going to record this myself. The really interesting thing about how this song was not recorded, but mixed is really what made the Roy Orbison sound and kind of the Nashville sound a thing. So recording music is... When you take a mic and you put it in front of an instrument or a person who's singing and you put that down onto some sort of recording format. So maybe it's digital back in the day it was on tape. Mixing is when you take those different parts and you splice them together at different volumes and you might equalize them to, to like heighten or lower certain frequencies. That's kind um, of
1: the misunderstanding about Phil Spector's wall of sound that like imitators had, which is like, oh, we just like, mic everything and turn it up into the red and it's like no
0: there are like complex dynamics here in the mixing right and and mixing is something that basically there has been kind of a standard way to mix for a really long time ever since that you know four track and eight track mixing was possible which is you would go from the ground up so you would mix the lowest sounds first And those would kind of be the foundation of the song, so the bass and the drums. And then you would put things on top of that and you would kind of make space for vocals or for higher parts later in the process. With this song, and this is kind of what Roy Orbison's sound became because of this song, everything was mixed from the top down. So he had this really unique, really beautiful voice and the mixing engineers wanted to highlight it. So. They took his vocal, which was mic'd very close, uh, so it feels very intimate, then mixed everything behind that. So the drums and the bass in the song are almost in the background. They almost kind of sound like they're in another room in a certain way. Gives this song this like beautiful, intimate, smoky club feel, especially with those vocals at the beginning. Eventually you get the payoff right towards the end of the song. You have Roy just continue to climb and climb and climb higher and higher oh, notes it's and hits so this boring. like unbelievable note that is not unbelievable in that he's singing such a high note, but it just he doesn't even sound like a person. He just sounds like yeah. this crystalline fog. It's such a perfect summation of what the Nashville A-Team was doing, which was not only recording these really beautiful parts, not only having these beautiful backing vocals, but creating an entire mixing system that catered to this artist and the sound that he was trying to produce.
1: Yeah, it makes that falsetto at the climax, the way they mixed it make more sense contextually that it like mm-hmm. can drop out and finally like give the whole room to this vocal, even though it's been hanging back a bit, then it like finally recedes. It totally makes sense.
0: Yeah. I, I love this song, and I just feel like this is the thing that for me makes Roy Orbison this like enigma. He is just yeah. like this mysterious character who writes this. Really beautiful music. And his voice is just, there's no other voice that's like that. I can't think of yeah. anybody. It definitely makes it
1: extremely competitive with my choice. <laughs> and uh, yet. <laughs> no, I can't. I can't relent. I can't concede more than a tie with this.
0: All right. I can't give up Patsy. They're very similar in that they both have this Nashville sound. But I feel like maybe, maybe they're just different ways of producing that Hollywood glamour sound.
1: The Orbison one
0: feels more
1: rooted still in like the singer songwriter mm. kind of thing. Although I, I hear a lot of like, I would have to look at a timeline, but the song seems to have impacted that. Are you lonesome tonight? Elvis mm. kind of era.
0: Um, kind of. Separate. Well, I mean, you think like uh, this song was written for Elvis, right? He wanted yeah, Elvis sense. to sing this song. So, yeah. But uh, I actually prefer Roy's
1: voice. So I'm glad that. Oh, for uh, sure. Is that going to get me death threats?
0: No, no. We don't have enough Elvis fans listening to this podcast yet.
1: But to me, Patsy Cline is, it's like this pearl that you buy at Tiffany's, Mm. you know, it's just this like immaculate product. Yeah. Well,
0: also on this album showcase, which is the the first song on it, as I fall to pieces, there is literally one song that is longer than two and a half minutes. Yeah, no, it's, uh, <laughs> it's... It's just every single one is as long them. as it needs to be. There is no yeah. fat on the on the bone. Right. Well, let's call it a tie. That is fine. I accept. Yeah. Do you uh, accept that Patsy Cline is, is a queen? I do. I, I don't yeah. think I have any problem saying that. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> yes. Nailed it. All right.
1: Let's move on to Motor City. To the backing band for Motown slash Tamla records, the Funk Brothers. Luckily for us, we don't have to summarize Motown that much because we've spoken pretty extensively Mm -hmm. about it. So go listen to our other episodes if you don't know what Motown is. Also, like get help if you don't know. So you know Our resident, our in-house villain, Barry Gordy, established Motown in the 50s. The original backing band was known as Earl Van Dyke and the Soul Brothers because Barry Gordy didn't like the word funk. They wanted to be the Funk Brothers. And he was like, we're, we don't make funk.
0: Barry Gordy. Um, I have I, I will tack on to the Barry Gordy uh, shaming in a bit. So don't worry. Yeah, I've got yeah, more. For sure. More so than any of these other
1: groups, the Funk Brothers were intentionally and aggressively left anonymous for decades Mm. Uh, like not a whole lot of information or crediting on the labels and Motown as we've talked about was just a really toxic place to work really Mm -hmm. wrung the the musicians and the stars uh, dry Um, but the results speak for themselves So as I mentioned, Motown had an LA satellite. So a lot of these classic Motown songs have the Wrecking Crew on them as well, uh, which I think is really cool. So who were some of the members of the Funk Brothers? Joe Hunter was the keyboardist and the band leader for the Funk Brothers for many years. Earl Van Dyke, who the group was originally called Earl Van Dyke and the Soul Brothers, Uh, just a couple of, I want to point out some unmistakable elements of some of these Motown classics and give a shout out to the people who are responsible for them. So Earl Van Dyke, you might know as the man on I Heard It Through the Grapevine, who played that keyboard part. James Jamerson, I've spoken about, uh, he was the bassist on every Motown song, brought him up in our Stevie Wonder episode. He was the guy playing live Fingertips Part 2, little Stevie Wonder's first number one hit along with Marvin Gaye on mm-hmm. um, drums. Crazy. <laughs> yeah.
0: And what what like what I I just every time that I think about that I'm like Marvin Gaye played drums on the, on the drums on Stevie, Stevie Wonder first hit. with James yeah. Jamerson just chilling on bass. It's, it's insane. What a incredible. world. Incredible. Yeah. It what a what a pleasure it is simply to
1: just learn about Motown. Right. You know. <laughs> it's like um, James Jamerson Directly influenced Paul McCartney's style. And more so than anyone, he was uncredited on all the songs until Mm. recently, which sucks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Again, Barry Gordy, you are a jerk. My Girl, You Can't Hurry Love. Marvin Gaye had him on all of the album, What's Going On?, And on the title track, What's Going On, Marvin Gaye was so adamant about having Jamerson on the track and he like wasn't there that he went and got him and Jamerson was drunk. And Marvin Gaye was like, come here, we're playing the song. You have to play. And so James Jamerson lay on his back, completely trapped, (laughs) played the bass part for What's Going On.
0: Amazing. Uh,
1: Pistol Allen was a session musician on Signed, Sealed, Delivered. He Mm. played the, the drum part. Heatwave by Martha and the Vandells. Robert White, who I'll bring up again, played the guitar part on My Girl. So there you go. how much more do you need there? So my choice is You Keep Me Hanging On by The Supremes. I have a lot of awe. I'm, mm. I, am, I am awe-stricken by this song. I think it's so strange and modern. little uh, tidbit of information about them. They were originally the sister group of the Temptations. They played a lot of shows with them and they auditioned for Motown and of course Barry Gordy didn't like them. (laughs) he's just always like doing the wrong thing and yet somehow has done the right thing but so he said we'll pass I don't see a future for you the Supremes but uh (laughs) what's funny is he he said no but then they just stuck around the Motown offices we'll hang out and do hand claps and like little backing vocal parts for all the songs and he was like sure and then they finally (laughs) like just embedded themselves so much that they were just there this song blows my mind it is so ominous Mm. the guitar line is played by robert white who played that part on my girl and it's like proto hard funk of the Mm 70s there's a hard funk edge to it and just the composition of it and the recording of it it sounds so textural and dark in this way that the whole girl group thing and all these singles if they weren't about a joyous thing it was about a breakup or something like that but it always sounded like pop sugar right it's that kind of girl group Phil Spector sound but this is one of those rare Motown hits where the subject matter matches the tone of the song and the tone Mm -hmm. is like kind of scary the song Mm -hmm. is sort of like nine inch nails <laughs> it's nine inch nails by way of motown with that guitar part and this sort of like weird ascending melody that diana ross is singing and the the supreme's doing those backup vocals it's ghostly I mm-hmm. uh, don't know where it came from, especially within the context of their career and just the whole Motown environment. But did you uh, did you feel that way? Do you, you get what I mean?
0: Yeah, totally. I was actually listening to the song and trying to figure out why I had that same kind of emotion. And one of the interesting things is in the chorus, there is a lot of tension between these four chords that keep shifting around and are very like much in a minor dark place harmonically. But the whole time, the guitar riff is the same. It's just this kind of chugging along little thing. and A little um, squirrely, a little manic, that guitar. Yeah, it's always interesting the way in which your ear perceives harmony when you have one thing staying the same and then everything else around it shifting. It gives a lot of richness and I think provides a lot of that unsettled feeling that you get when you're listening to the song. my choice. What's yours? Ooh, mine is a good one. It is the song money parentheses. That's what I want. This song is really cool. And the <laughs> the story behind this song is just Barry Gordy being an asshole again. Of course, but Barrett Strong didn't really have a, a significant career beyond this track. But interestingly, was one of the first Artists signed to Tomla which is Hmm. the kind of subsidiary label of Motown that Barry Gordy started that was also the home for Stevie Wonder originally you know this is somebody who's was really paving the way for the Motown sound for the Tomla label and the song is the song itself is just like really all about Barrett Strong's voice I feel like I mean getting back to your idea of like this kind of punk rock aesthetic like this song the way in which the instruments are recorded just feels like the speakers are blown out like everything feels very punk kind of rock and roll. song became a just enormous hit for Barrett Strong and outlived him actually because it was covered by so many other artists so there's a very famous Beatles cover of this song there's a Rolling Stones cover there's a Led Zeppelin cover Jerry Lee Lewis covered this buddy guy covered this like the, the song is more famous because of the people who covered it than the you know actual artists who wrote it well speaking of the artists who wrote it this song has writing credits from both Barry Gordy and Barrett Strong. And Barry Gordy basically later said that actually I wrote the song myself. And the only reason that Barrett is credited as being a code writer is because there was a clerical error. He did that so much. And he did that with these <laughs> session musicians too. He would take the session credits sometimes as well. Right. Right. I mean, the it's dish. just like, you know, as, as much as there is enormous importance from what Barry Gordy did from like a business standpoint and launching these people's careers. He was just like an asshole. Like he was just he was a, a pox. ruthless asshole. <laughs> yeah. But fortunately this song stands the test of time and we can still go back and listen to it. And I think like although those covers of the song are so well known, the original just has so much character flavor. such a good one but i kind of have to give it to you i mean it's the supremes
1: the song is i mean they're literally supreme so (laughs) there you go i'll take it
0: nice all right so going into our last session musician group we're going to talk about the muscle shoals rhythm section also known as the swampers it's so good. It's I've been good wanting movie. to talk
1: about Muscle Shoals for a very long time. Maybe just as an excuse to like learn more about it. It's just like how did this random ass northern Alabama town become <laughs> such a central part of music history?
0: Well, so it's really interesting. I mean, there was no grand plan for this to be the center of music history in a lot of ways. It basically just happened to be that there were this group of musicians in this northern Alabama town of Muscle Shoals. There was a studio. It was kind of along a busy road and it sounded like shit. And it just became the place that people would go to record. And it was one of those things where it wasn't so much that the session musicians were known for being the best, right? Like you have with The Wrecking Crew. It wasn't so much known for, you know, it it was this studio that was just pumping out hits like you had with Barry Gordy's, you know, Tama label and the Funk Brothers, just like, you know, producers of the absolute most massive hits at the time. It was one person went there and they told somebody else about it and they told somebody else about it. And all of a sudden you have Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett, Percy Sledge, basically all of the musicians who then, bite the sound of all of these really famous black musicians like the Rolling Stones and Simon come in afterwards. But what's interesting is, so Muscle Shoals studio with the, the Swampers being the session musicians there, as I said, Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. These really venerated black musicians. Almost none of the Swampers were black. Just a bunch of white guys. Um, and so you had all these really famous, top of the pops kind of people, black musicians coming to Muscle Shoals and walking into the studio and going, "All these white people playing this music. What yeah. the hell?" <laughs> and there are a lot of really interesting characters that were part of this crew. I'm going to tell you a story, and that'll be a way to for us to kind of familiarize ourselves with some of the characters. So, we're going to take ourselves back to January 1967. Jerry Wexler, record executive, brings a young Aretha Franklin in her mid-20s to Muscle Shoals to record her very first session for Atlantic. And at this time, you know, Muscle Shoals has already been pumping out hits Aretha Franklin goes down there with her husband, whose name is Ted White. So they are recording, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Loved You. And this is the very first session of Aretha's time down there. The idea was she's going to record a whole bunch of songs. And some of those songs are going to go on her album with Atlantic. Well, Ted White has been secretly drinking uh, an entire bottle of vodka with the horn section during this recording session. (laughs) And he starts to become really belligerent. And he actually demands that this trumpet player, who's in this horn section named Ken Laxton, be fired for making passes at Aretha. And basically, Jerry Wexler says, "You know, okay, that that's fine. We'll we'll fire him." So Ken Laxton fired on spot. About an hour later, Ted White, again Aretha Franklin's husband, bursts into the room again. Says, "Now the sax player has to be fired because he's flirting with my wife." (laughs) So then Jerry Wexler says, "Okay." fire the sax player, and of course, at this point, things are getting a little heated, so they just say, we're yeah. going to end the session. So at this point, they've they've done the session for I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. Everybody goes back to their homes. Aretha and Ted go back to their hotel room. So Rick Hall, who is the leader of this group goes to the hotel room to try and kind of smooth things over. And while, while they're trying to smooth things over, Rick Hall and Ted White get into a massive fist fight and Aretha Franklin <laughs> apparently joins in and starts beating the shit out of, <laughs> of Hall. And they like, you know, he he leaves the hotel. So again, Rick Hall goes to the lobby, calls Aretha Franklin's room and threatens Ted White and Aretha Franklin and says, you better get out of town or else, you, you know, bad things are going to happen to you. So, so, of course- Ted and Aretha leave. Jerry Wexler leaves. The only song that they had finished that day, amidst all of this insanity, is "I Never Loved a Man the Way That I Loved You," which goes to number one. It yeah. becomes this massive, massive hit. Basically, Atlantic says, hey, we really want the Swampers to come and play more music because they did such a good job, despite <laughs> all of this insanity. Yeah. So basically, without Rick Hall and without the Muscle Shoals studio, Jerry Wexler flies out the Swampers to New York to record at Atlantic <laughs> Studios. And they have a session that includes them recording the song Respect, which oh goes God. on to be yeah. you know, the song Respect. So just this is the kind of shit that goes down, right? Like this is not a, you know, the wrecking crew. You come in and we bang yeah, out 15 yeah. tracks in the most professional way. It's like a bunch of drunk Southerners it's like the, it's like the in a highway, yeah. you know, adjacent studio in the middle of the summer, like getting sweaty and recording music. <laughs> and leering at Aretha Franklin. <laughs> leering at Aretha Franklin. So that is, um, that's my story and yeah. I'm sticking to it. And that, I just feel uh, like... Yeah. What more do you need, right? Like that's Muscle Sh- Muscle Shoals. And again, produced just some of the most iconic hits out of this really backwater town in, in Northern Alabama.
1: It's got to be the favorite of the four because it's just like, who doesn't love a scrappy drunk underdog? Exactly.
0: Know? Yeah. So um, there's a lot of songs I could have chosen, but one song that really stuck out to me that I, I did decide to go for a little bit of a deeper cut here, but not all that deep because it's Etta James. We've talked about Etta James before, so I won't go into into her story, but the song I chose was Tell Mama. Mm. And this song is just like, it feels like a punk song. I mean, we've talked about this already, but it's like so aggressive and straightforward. Feel like that's kind of the aesthetic that this group lent to a lot of their music you know if you yeah. think about the song respect that's such a hard-hitting song right like they just had an ability to punch above their weight and i punch literally <laughs> in certain cases <laughs> um and, and i just feel like there is something that this track has that is really reflective of that there's like this funk to it there's this edge to it you thought you hadn't found a good girl. Etta James just like growling, these oh, yeah. horn stabs
1: coming in the chorus. She sounds extremely terrifying and <laughs> aggressive on this right, song. Right, exactly. Incredible. Yeah. Good nice. stuff. Well,
0: what, was, what was your pick?
1: I'm glad we're going to end with this. I chose this song because I think it's hilarious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you did too. I chose uh, Roadrunner by The Gantt. And the 60s, the British invasion, the second wave of rock and roll, and this, this garage rock explosion produced thousands of groups who showed up to places like Muscle Shoals and made their song. And it was a novelty hit and it got mm-hmm. spun on some radio stations. And then they just faded into the night. Just one mm-hmm. of thousands and thousands of groups that line the bargain bins of history. And that kind of stuff, if you dig into it, is like, that's the real fun, you know. Mm-hmm. Look at the the losers of the post-British invasion story. Right. But the Gants were just some dudes, some garage rockers. And they made this cover of this Bo Diddley song, Roadrunner. Oh, okay and it has you know it makes sense with Bo Diddley because Bo Diddley wrote the same song over and over again it's <laughs> right. just got that same blues chord progression that same kind of you know those harmonies crashing towards this chorus a la, this...
0: a la Chuck Berry kind of write right. the same song over and over yeah but this song is
1: hilarious and it's because the lyrics are I'm a roadrunner baby you can't keep up with me but it's interspersed with so in the Bo Diddley part it's a little more coy it's cool he's doing like you know in his voice but on this song they intersperse it with one of the band members is doing this impression of the roadrunner from Looney Tunes who gets chased (laughs) by the coyote (laughs) and like the timing of it is comedic you know mm-hmm. the the instrumental track builds up to this climax and they're doing this really cool like rough garage rock backing vocal and then it mm-hmm. just drops and then you hear him go meet me <laughs>
0: It's sort of like it's funny cuz like the song itself has that same kind of edge to it that we were talking about with the Edda James song. Yeah. But then it's like a fucking Alvin and the Chipmunks song, like a yeah. novelty. It's like, such an, so
1: weird. It's such a novelty song, but also like the the roadrunner impression is very impressive. Nailed it. <laughs> he nailed, nailed it. it. And it's just so fun and you know I didn't have this information on Muscle Shoals that you were just saying this kind of story but I think it's a great showcase of the little studio that could just this crappy garage rock band who comes in and pounds out a novelty song and it gets good radio play and they fade away but uh, it has energy it has raw attitude to it and you can imagine that they're sitting around they're like how are we gonna get noticed we're gonna actually make the roadrunner sound and that will get us
0: <laughs> <picked> <laughs> that's out." that's how we're gonna be famous Yeah, but the
1: song is a delight I think it's super fun but of course not gonna I'm not gonna do edit James dirty like that of course uh, your your pick is the superior one well
0: thank you but uh, I, ho- and I hope with- it was fun while it lasted when you hear when you heard this it was. It was a lot of fun. I mean, you got to love goofy shit. Me, <laughs> me. <laughs> so good. Wait, do you win? Who wins?
1: Uh, uh, you, yeah, you win. I think it's I win. Two hey, yes But you know who really wins? Tell me. Uh, Aretha Franklin's husband. He did win the fistfight to be dead. Yeah. He uh, asserted his dominance quite uh, ably. So (laughs) it is sad that it's a bit of a dying art. I mean, you still have, you know, any uh, any of the music that's coming out of Nashville now, you know, you're still going to have session musicians. But like, it was cool. It was cool that in this era, there was just this ecosystem of tradespeople who brought you the sounds that are the, you know,
0: the soundtrack of your life, right? Yeah, I I do think it's a really interesting insight into like why certain sounds existed and just an amazing lens to look at pop music from especially this era of like, you know, the fifties through kind of the end of the seventies of it wasn't just these auteurs doing every single thing themselves. It was people like Carol Kay, who, you know, Brian Wilson said, hey, throw down a baseline, Carol. Yeah. You know, show me what you got. Um, and that's such a, such a cool, interesting story and kind of encyclopedia to dive into. Oh,
1: for sure. And this truly was just the surface because you can go on the Wikipedias of these and there are dozens and dozens and dozens of musicians and you can just learn about them, see what they played on. And it's, it's just a delight.
0: Yeah, so. Exactly.
1: With that being said, uh, our podcasting session is now complete on Session Musicians. Uh, I'm glad we finally did this. We've been thinking about doing it for a while.
0: Yeah, we've been um, talking about
1: it. If you liked the clips that we played, you can go to the Chorus versus Chorus Spotify playlist and listen to uh, all the songs in their entirety. If you like what we do, tell a friend. Yeah. And, and they'll be like, yeah, I'll listen to yet another podcast. And <laughs> tell me to listen to. Yeah, sure.
0: Well, you know, if people are uh, if people are still stuck in their houses, maybe there's a chance. Oh, dude. Now that uh, quarantine is over, we're screwed. No now more but, podcast it, listeners for us.
1: But I mean, if you have a commute now, the perfect thing to do during a commute is listen to our podcast. This is true. Uh,
0: or just listen to it when you can, if you want. And we love you for
1: it. We love you for it no matter what you do. Even if you don't listen to it, we love you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye.